Well, good afternoon, everybody out there. Welcome to After Further Review. Mark Ferreira, John Pelkey, produced by Jeff Taylor. It's uh, Deep Dive 8 time. Deep Dive 8. We're going to focus on Jesse Owens. John, these deep dives have uh, they've, they've got, you've grown tired of them, haven't you, to some degree? <laughs> I have not. I have not grown I tired. You, I of, think you've grown tired of them a little bit. No, I'm just. You know, I'm on deck for the next one, and I'm and I'm struggling to come up with a uh, with a topic. I like the topic you brought up earlier today about seventy some sort of seventy two local competition. The nineteen seventy two Springfield Youth Club Rough Riders County Championship team, um, which is the only football championship I won in my uh, in my career. Um, and you were seven or eight? I was eight. Yes, it was Very my good. first boys club year, and we won the county championship. I played guard on that wow. team. Wow, guard. Yes, small <laughs> mobile guards. All right, that's just it's early West Coast offense thinking right there. Started, you got to uh, pull. We ran an unbalanced line, Mark. I tell you, it's it's really uh, it's a bunch of gritty kids. Uh, you know what? I'm many already of whom, like intrigued. myself, with no athletic ability whatsoever. So stay tuned a week from today folks for deep dive nine the 1972 battle the rough riders of the rough riders the yes. rough riders battle i mean come on that's pretty fascinating good stuff. we had to pick a team name that you know my, my my favorite part of that entire in my first year playing eight-year-old football it really was a lot of fun and i actually do have a picture of myself uh getting the trophy from that that somebody sent me it was really hysterical um and but uh my favorite part about this is, you know they let you pick a team name in the beginning and we were kind of iconoclastic because we're like, we don't want some, we don't want an NFL team name, you know, because everybody else is the Steelers or the Vikings. The Lions. In the 70s. Yeah. No, no one chose the Lions. It was the early 70s. Uh, you know, everybody had a name, a team name. Uh, so uh, we said, no, we, we want something different. And uh, somebody brought up Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. And we See, went, there you go. That's a cool name for a team. Was it you that brought up Teddy Roosevelt? I mean, I think when you tell the story next week, I think you should make you the guy that brings that up. Well, I didn't. I, I don't believe it was me, uh, but I will claim uh, I will claim responsibility. I'm, I'm only in contact with one or two other people from that team. And uh, as they are friends or family, they clearly don't listen to or watch our show. So they won't so contribute. There's, well, and there's no way they can dispute. I can, I can take credit for many, many things. Well, we're looking forward to that. The Rough Riders of 72 coming up next week. In the meantime, let's get to Deep Dive 8 and the Jesse Owens story. A uniquely American story it is. It's a very complicated, it's a story about a very complicated America of, of obviously ridiculous and cruel treatment of blacks, of hope in the darkest of times, of a can-do attitude of achieving greatness that the world has never seen in some cases, never will see, of frustratingly slow movement till equal opportunity, of the bottom line, you know, winning over decency and truth and the complex relationship between race and sports. It's about the passion and confusion, oh, by the way, of civil rights. The, the big question that everyone grapples with with that is, is how, do, how do you bridge differences with civil rights? You know, when do you fight? When do you take the high ground? That question permeated throughout Jesse Owens' life. But it's also a story of great appreciation and great redemption. Because in the end, Jesse Owens' significance, it transcends his phenomenal great feats of athleticism. 
and it was he was just very clutch. It was very very clutch for him to in front of the world in front of the world show that what a black man could do when the chips are down. Uh, it obviously paved the way for Jackie Robinson, paved the way for all kinds of future civil rights movement and progression. But the fact that he had that moment in front of the world, in front of Hitler, and performed the way he did, that's pretty That's pretty clutch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I put him up there with the kind of the precursor guys who are most important to Jackie Robinson with like a Joe Lewis as well. Yep. These African-American athletes that were heroes in this country. And then sadly, given the state of racial uh, racial affairs at that time, and sadly still in some areas, um, no, they were not able in their post-performance uh, career, their post-athletic uh, careers, to parlay that into the type of success they would have been able to had they been white. It's true. It's true. It's part of the struggle of Jesse Owens, and we will get to that as well. It's uh, it. There's a lot of sadness in the story, but there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of redemption as well. It's, uh, again, uniquely American in the way this plays out. So he, Jesse Owens, he was born J- Jesse Cleveland Owens. He was known as JC, and he was born in 1913 in Alabama. His parents were sharecroppers. His grandparents were slaves. Mm. And uh, the family then moved to Cleveland when he was about eight or nine. That was part of the Great Migration right. in the early 20s. Uh, a million and a half African-Americans, John, as you know, they left the segregated South in hopes of uh, you know, more success, more opportunities in the industrialized North. And uh, to some degree, they got it. Cleveland was a hot spot. Their economy was booming at the time. And uh, they had somewhat relatively progressive racial attitudes about things certainly compared to some areas in Alabama. And so Jesse Owens' dad and the whole family moved up. And, uh, of course, he was always working, always working odd jobs his whole life, uh, really his whole life. But he started to realize his love for running when he was in junior high school, and it really had a lot to do with this guy, his coach, Charles Riley. Now, that's not a picture Jesse Owens from junior high, John. That's I looked for. I looked for young Olympic pictures of Jesse Jesse Owens. That is there, not. That is actually him in his Olympic uh, togs. Uh, yes, exactly. Right there. But so, that's his. That's his junior high coach, right. who who uh, is congratulating him. And his name is Charles Riley. And a couple of things why it was influential influential for Jesse. Jesse again had these odd jobs, menial jobs, whatever you want to call them, to help his family out. And he had to do that after school. And that's normally when practice was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, what Riley was able to do is say, you, go ahead, you can practice before school. And not only that, he gave them this bit of training advice. He said, when you're running on the track, pretend the track is on fire and barely touch the ground. And that was a revolutionary concept because most runners at that point, you know, were used to just planting hard and using that to propel themselves. But what Riley told him is that, have your feet barely touch the ground. And that's what gave him his amazing speed. So he was a huge, huge influence, this coach. So what happened is that when he gets to high school, he wins 74 out of the 79 events he was in. He wins all of the events uh, in his senior year. And he also goes to the National High School Championship in Chicago where he runs the 100-yard dash and sets or equals a world record in high school, equaling a world record undefeated in his senior year. So, of course, the college offers come flowing in. 
But again, there was no scholarships back then. The NCAA right. didn't believe in that. They thought it would um, mar the amateur status of these people, of anyone really, white or black. <laughs> Have they ever been on the right side of anything? No, sake, no, really? they weren't. Lord. But luckily, there was a benefactor shows up in Columbus. I'm sure there's a quite a few benefactors in Columbus, Ohio, John Pelking. Mm-hmm. And he gave Jesse a well-paying elevator man job. It's a pretty good gig. And uh, so there he was at the Ohio State University. Now, uh, blacks were not allowed to live on, on campus housing. They you know, oftentimes wouldn't be allowed to eat with their white teammates, wouldn't be allowed to stay in the same hotels as their white teammates. And later on in life, someone, someone said this about Jesse Owens, and this is a key point, that he raised little fuss when confronted with all this Jim Crow stuff. Very little fuss. And, and, and people gave him a hard time about that the rest of his life. But he, he really tried to cool the tempers of fellow black athletes who are ready to explode with this. And this, this was considered somewhat acquiescing. And here's the divide. Here is the, the divide in the black culture and in, in the white culture as well in terms of what do you do? Do you let it go? Do you try and bridge a gap or do you fight back? That's the, the constant question. And he got a lot of grief from it. But the reason why he was this way is because he was very much uh, a fan of Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you could maybe go if you're really studying the socioeconomic and political history of African-Americans in this country. Uh, he would be part of a black conservative movement, quote unquote. But I think it goes beyond that. He was an educator. He was an author. He advised multiple presidents, Booker T. Washington, and he got his major fame in 1895 uh, when he was in Atlanta. There was a series of lynchings and he got up there and stood up and he said that black progress can happen through entrepreneurship and education as opposed to trying to challenge directly Jim Crow segregation and disenfranchisement of blacks, don't necessarily challenge that. Just grow your business. He started the national, uh, uh, what was it, the National um, Negro Business League. Mm -hmm. He started that. He was, he was one of the founders of one of the earliest historically uh, black colleges to, in Tuskegee. So that was his thing entrepreneurship and education and Jesse Owens bought it. Jesse Owens believed it. And Jesse Owens really kind of espoused that his entire life. And you know, it didn't serve him well all of the time. So as Jesse Owens was looking at segregation, he was looking at his own economic well-being. in the meantime, he's a freshman at Ohio state university and the freshmen weren't allowed to compete. So they had uh, an exhibition match with just the freshman. He was competing just against the freshman. And, oh, by the way, he set a school record on the 120-yard dash. And there was an actual meet of the upperclassmen at the same day, and no one was talking about the other meet. Everyone was talking about this kid, Jesse Owens, as a freshman. That's well, a reminder. It, it reminds me of uh, the uh, freshmen still couldn't compete when uh, Lou Alcindor, soon to become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, played uh, at UCLA. Yeah. And the freshman team at UCLA scrimmaged the defending and future national championship upper class team, and they just destroyed them. And no one, they were, the, the, the UCLA team, and I guess this would have been 69, 6, 65, 
four, maybe his freshman year, that they the national championship UCLA team that uh, the team that won the national championship that year was the second best team on campus. Yeah, at that, that year, and it was the same with great. the Ohio State because I believe there were other guys of Jesse Owens' class in that Ohio State uh, track team that were better than the upperclassmen as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It 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 was. Uh... Pretty phenomenal, pretty amazing. But if you really want phenomenal, you really want amazing, let's fast forward a year to the Big Ten Championship. The Big Ten Championship, it was held in Ann Arbor. Now, I'm going to do a little side note here. Gerald Ford happened to be going to Michigan at the time. There he is. All-American football player. Along with Willis Ward. And uh, the story goes that a year before this, in 34, Georgia Tech was going to go up to Ann Arbor to play the Wolverines. And they said, we'll play you. We'll go up there. But you've got to bench your only African-American player. And Gerald Ford was so upset, he literally threatened to quit the team over this. And he and Willis Ward were big buddies, big buddies. And Ford only played when Ward told him, go ahead and play. He convinced him to play. And Ward, as a matter of fact, Willis Ward was in this. He was also a track and field runner. He was in this Big Ten competition um, along with Jesse Owens in May of 1935. Would go on to be a prominent African-American in Republican politics as well. Uh, Supported George Romney over Barry Goldwater in the 60s. And additionally, um, during the Second World War, when Jesse was struggling to find work, um, Willis Ward, who'd gone on to become an attorney, was uh, on the board or in some way working with the Ford Motor Company and got Jesse a job with the Ford Motor Company, which really kept him afloat in a period where had he not been, and I hate to continually go over this, but it's important, had he not been an African-American athlete, he would have been raking in the endorsement money. Oh, all the time. People thought after the Olympics that he was going to make $100,000 his first year. It was that that hot, but boy, boy, it cooled quickly and it stayed cool. And we'll get into that. But that's a good story about Willis Ward. And he was there that day in in May of 1935. So what happened on that day in a span of 45 minutes? (laughs) At 315, he runs the 100-yard dash. He ties his own world record there. At 325, 10 minutes later, he does the broad jump, which is now known as the long jump. Shattered the previous world record a full six inches further. He jumped 26 feet, eight and a quarter inches. With that record lasted 25 years, oh, by the way. Mm-hmm. At 344, he does the 220-yard sprint, another world record at 20.3 seconds. And then at 4 o'clock, he does the 220-yard low hurdles, another world record, 22.6 seconds. First ever to break the 23-second mark. So in the span of 45 seconds, he ties minutes. or breaks Wait, four world records you, you, that was minutes you said actually seconds there for which would would really have been amazing it was amazing as it was but yes in what? 45 minutes oh yeah I'm sorry. You, you did say 45 seconds 45 minutes so yes, he actually not minutes. only did he break them in that 45 second mirror he had to like run the 220 and then sprint over to the start of the next because he had to get it all in in 45 seconds in no 45 that's seconds. considered the, it's, it's it's to this day considered the greatest uh, track athlete performance of all time yeah Greatest 45 minutes in sports, actually, is what a lot of people say of any sport, anywhere, anytime. He was known as the Buckeye Bullet at that point. Uh, Big Ohio State guy. He won eight NCAA championships in his sophomore and his junior years. In his junior year, he uh, competed in 42 different events and won them all. The first black captain of the Ohio State University, thanks to Coach Larry Snyder. And Larry Snyder, there he is. 
big influence. So Larry Snyder and Charles Riley, two huge influences in Jesse Owens's life. Two white men, oh, by the way, as two of the biggest influences in his life. So now, obviously, he qualifies for the Olympics. It's happening the next year. And uh, but it may it almost didn't happen. There was a boycott there. Uh, the big movement to, to boycott the Olympics because of the Nazi treatment of minorities. Now, again, it's pretty hilarious on multiple levels, actually. Obviously, the comparison to the USA where we didn't have a stellar record treating minorities. Oh, by the way. Right. Uh, but also that most Americans by 1936 knew how bad Hitler was. Yeah. And yet we still had this isolationist mood in the country. I mean, the America first thing didn't happen for a few years later. Uh, it was like in 1936, it was highly isolationist feeling in this country. And yet we still knew what a POS Hitler was. Yeah. So. And there was, there was movement uh, uh, back internationally to take the games away from Germany because they were actually awarded uh, during the Weimar Republic era. And that was in 1931. Right. They were awarded those games. And then, of course, there was a push to not have the games there. People were still by 36 people had had genuinely woken, uh, awakened to uh, the danger of the Nazis at that point. And yet we still weren't preparing for no, any of sort not. of war. At that well, point you know, we, 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 we did feel we had a couple of oceans between us and yeah, oceans rise, empires fall, Mark. I know I that somewhere. I have to three times actually in one <laughs> play. Uh, uh, so anyway, Jesse supported it at first. He went along with everyone. Uh, then Avery Bundage, we'll get to him in, in a second, but he was in there and he told everyone that the games were about the athletes, not politics. <laughs> Avery Bundage, the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee yes. for far yes. too long. He was the, the head. He was the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, and he was then the head of the International Olympic Committee for a long time as well. We'll get to him a little bit later and how special a guy he is. Uh, then Owen started thinking. He started thinking about the hypocrisy. He started thinking about, uh, you know, that this is pretty silly that we're advocating this from this point of view, and I want to run. I don't want to miss this opportunity. I'm clearly thinking I'm the best runner in the world. I want this, and so he backed off. He, uh, he expressed his desire to compete, and then he, he got a lot of grief from the NAACP at that point in time. And, again, it wouldn't be the first that he got grief from the African-American community. So they all go to Berlin. They arrive in Berlin, 1936. And uh, in a lot of ways, even though the world had woken up, John, I would say Hitler was at basically his peak of his cult status at that point. Sure. Uh, you, you know, I think as things progressed toward war, people still adored him and trusted him. But in terms of just how cult-like it was, especially when the Olympics got there, it was like this country had been, you know, put under a rock for 15 years, uh, for 17 years, whatever it was. And boy, oh boy, they were they went nuts with this thing. They brand, built a brand new stadium for the Olympics. They had the first modern torch run in Olympic history, so they were ahead of the curve mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And then one of the one of the events at the at this opening ceremony, they released a hunt, like hundreds of doves, maybe even thousands of them. And then, of course, to point out to the world that we're back militarily, all of their cannons go off and it scares the pigeons shitless. 
and raining down upon all of the Olympic athletes and everyone that would had been in the parade uh, is all of this dove poop. And uh, the men, a lot of the men were wearing straw hats back in those days, so they were okay. But the women, not so much. So Wasn't good job, good. Germany. Good job showing how great you are. I mean, what morons? I'm re- I'm relatively surprised they just didn't put live ammunition in and aim that at the doves and just rip through them like a scythe through corn. <laughs> I am surprised at that, too. When I first saw this on uh, YouTube, I thought, oh, God, are they going to just kill blow them out of the air? I mean, I just thought that's put what they were going to do. Grape shot in those cannons. And uh, hello, everybody. It's Vin Scully here at the 36 Olympics. And look at all those birds. What's happening with the artillery? They're pointing the artillery towards the bird. They've let it. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> as God is my witness, I didn't expect this here today on a sunny afternoon in Berlin. Yeah, that was yeah. not smart. And luckily, we have other sound from Vince Scully that we'll get to a little bit later. <laughs> so the German people, though, it's interesting. The stark contrast, the way Jesse was treated in Berlin, John, and all of his African-American teammates, there were 10 on that team, uh, compared to the way they were treated in the U.S. First of all, the German fans adored them. They, were, they lionized them later as the games progressed. And they were kind of the toast of the town, and they could stay at the white hotels. Mm. So it's highly ironic that Nazi Germany <laughs> treated them better than the United States of America. Now, Hitler, however, he you know, saw this hubbub, saw this hubbub, you know, about Jesse Owens. He wasn't impressed. It was like taking air away from his greatness, Berlin's greatness, Germany's greatness. And uh, he fired off a tweet before Owens came to town. Now, we are lucky to have found this retro tweet. Very lucky to have found this. And again, very lucky to have sound accompanying it. Let's, let's take a listen. Well, let's check in on social media here at the 36 Berlin Olympics. This is from at Fab Fuhr. How about that? Owens is all hype. Was he even born in America? And then the unfortunate hashtag Jews start all wars. Well, well, it is ironic, okay. particularly because he's about to start a world war in a couple. Of yes. Days. So yes, there exactly. you go. Uh, was he even born? He, the birther conspiracy started a lot longer uh, you know, than we thought. <laughs> Thank you, Vin. I'm sure. I appreciate that. So uh, we have that sound, and he fired off that tweet. But um, regardless, the games began, and Jesse's first event was the 100 meters. Let's listen to that call right now, shall we? Owens is ahead. Stunberg and Bosman are fighting. Ozendorf challenges Wyckoff. Metcalf comes up. But Owens wins in 10.3. Second, Metcalf America. Third, Ozendorf Holland. Very nice. Metcalf was his teammate. He finished second, and he will uh, factor into this story a little bit later as well. So he had a great first run, got it in 10.3, and he had tremendous poise, tremendous class. After he had won, he was interviewed by the press. This is what he said. Let's take a listen. Very glad to have won the 100 meters in the Olympic Games here in Berlin. A very beautiful place and a very beautiful setting. The competition was grand, and we're very glad to come out on top. Thank you, very kindly. Yeah, he was very gracious, very gracious to Berlin, gracious to Hitler as well. Uh, Hitler, of course, was not pleased and made the famous decision to not congratulate any athletes so he didn't have to congratulate any 
Negro, quote unquote, Negro athletes. Well, I think you have to. I think you have to give a little credit where credit is due in that respect, because I believe, and and I can't remember the name of the guy who was head of the IOC then. He replaced Baron von Kuberton, who was the uh, the guy who put together the modern Olympiad for the first time. But he he, he basically said to the Fuhrer, "You either uh, congratulate everybody, or you don't congrat, or you congratulate nobody," and and stood on that. So. You know, give a little credit where credit is due. Somebody pushed Hitler on that. And, uh, you know, obviously the cow being the coward that he was, he, he took that way out. But uh, the Olympic Committee, which doesn't get a lot of credit in this story, nor many, frankly. But that was that was their rule. So good for them on that one. And it was was very interesting because that did not go over well in America. And that news, the way it was being reported, got back to Jesse. And he said, listen. I, I was told he had other things to do, and when I ran around the track after that, he, he waved at me, and I just don't think it's very classy to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, to put someone else down in their own country. He just took that high road all the time, even with Adolf Hitler, mm. and people, people just, you know, they, they, they shook their heads on some level, but, but they shook their heads out of amazement, really good and bad amazement about this guy. So, you know, because, you know, that's what Hitler was quoted as saying. Do you really think I'm going to allow myself? Do you really think I'm going to allow myself to shake, you know, a Negro's hand, shake hands with a Negro? So, but Hitler was Hitler was okay because the next event coming up was the long jump, and he had his guy. Lutz Long was his guy. It was a star athlete, and he couldn't wait for this long jump race. As a matter of fact, he tweeted about it again where – Lucky to have that tweet, and we're lucky to have the sound that goes with it. Hey, this is Harry Carey at the 36th Olympics. Here's, here's the retro twet. I don't know. At Fab Fuhrer, there's never been a champion as German as Lose Long. U.S. media won't tell you that. Loves his country. He's a winner. Owens is a dumb, shiftless monopoly. Hashtag Germany first. Hashtag fake news. Wow. Thank you, Harry. That was outstanding. So that was Thank a retro tweet right before the Lutz long race against Jesse Owens, the broad jump. And I'll tell you, this is a nice little story because when they were doing their qualifying preliminaries, Jesse kept disqualifying himself because he kept scratching. It was a, It's called a scratch when you have your foot on the, the mark before you jump. You have to have it before the mark. And he kept doing that. And so Lutz Long came to him and said, just put your you know mark, just imagine it just a little bit before that one and use that one. And so it worked for Jesse. And that's what happened. He, Jesse took his advice, jumped 26 feet, five and a half inches, broke an Olympic record, and uh, won the event. I think we have a good look at that right there. That that event, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, is just stark because there's Jesse right there uh, saluting on the podium, and there's Lutz Long right behind him with the Nazi salute. It's just an amazing, it's an amazing pick. But they posed together, the both of them, and they walked arm in arm to the dressing room, and and this was all Lutz Long just you know having an affinity for this great great runner. And Owens later said it took a lot of courage for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. And unfortunately, Lutz Long story ends in 1943. Uh, I don't know what 
battle it was, John. It might have been in the Soviet. I believe it was on the Eastern Front. Yeah, may have been on the Eastern Front that uh, where Lutz Long uh, died. Yes. By so, the way, I'd like to apologize for anybody who was offended by the fact that Mark felt it necessary to explain what a scratch was in a long jump. Really? Yeah. Everybody knows that's when you step over the you step over the takeoff line. Everybody, um, you hate the Olympics. Let's let's just be honest. This is the only Olympics you've ever been interested in. It's thirty six. <laughs> Outside of that, you find it a an immense waste of time. I don't mean I don't mean to undercut your show in any way, but you just you hate the Olympics. I think there are some people out there that maybe just needed an other explanation of what scratch means. Yeah, you think? Yeah. They didn't know what a scratch was. Yeah, maybe. Just, just to be clear, just to be clear for everyone. And again, I didn't say I didn't. I, all I'm saying is that some people. I don't take an elitist point of view, been, John, like you do with everything. You know, I I know it's not. You You're know, I know. Explaining the scratch. Good lord! Please. In case anybody out there is not as well versed in sports, the scratch is when. Come on, man! Wow. Wow. And I I feel bad because everybody listening is either your family or friends, and you feel like you got a mansplain to them. Well, again, anytime I explain or mansplain something, it doesn't mean that everyone already knows it. I I don't I don't think that's true. Is that everyone knows? It. Not everyone is as steeped in Olympic parlance as you. I don't. I, I reject your call to apologize to I the friends and family. I there. didn't. I did you not. You called for an apology. You said, I apologize. It's like you, a you Supreme completely Court completely hijacked the show over the term scratch. It's like a Supreme Court decision, and, and, and I am presenting an alternative. Uh, I, 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 I'm giving you my uh, right. dissent. Right. That is my dissent. For those of you who were not offended by it, okay. Offended. You were. Offended I'm right there by with it. you. All right. Let All me right. explain the long jump. You run and jump a long way. It was called the broad jump I at know that, that time. It was called, I did it in high school. I know. Right. Was it called the broad really? jump back then, or was it called the long jump? I, the hell, I don't remember. All right. One of the two. All right. So let's get back to the Olympics, <laughs> if we can. Just trying to. Trying to. His trying next to one was the 200 meters. For myself as a, as, a, as a host there, that I understand the people who might be offended by your <laughs> approach. Well, so. okay, if there are people that are offended. <laughs> oh, the non-apology. Yeah, well, no, I'm not. If you were offended by I'm, my yeah. mansplaining. If you were offended by that, by my mansplaining, <laughs> which is just ridiculous to say it like that, since yeah. there's no women right here that we're talking to. Uh, but there are there probably is at least one woman listening to the show. Hi, Nana. Yes, exactly. All right, so the next one was the 200 meters. He broke that Olympic record. Uh, obviously, at this point in time, he had done all three of his races that he was slated to do. African-Americans in this country were excited, inspired. It was a great time, and the Germans weren't reacting well. Josef Goebbels said white humanity should be ashamed of itself. He says it's unfair to have Owens on their team. You might as well have a deer or gazelle. I mean, these guys are just, you know, rich. But it did, it shattered, it shattered the belief that this Aryan supremacy, it just shot a massive hole in it. It was great. So now uh, he's done. Jesse's done with his events that were slated. He was slated for those three events. And uh, on the last day of the Olympics, the four by 100 meter relay uh, was set to go. 
And in that morning, the morning of the race, they were called in, the sprinters, just the sprinters, were called in with coaches and other officials and said, you know, we've, we've got this word that there's two secret German runners that they didn't tell us about that are designed to try and embarrass us on this and win this. So we're going to replace um, Marty Glickman and Sam Stoller, the only two Jews on the team, by the way. Marty Glickman later goes on to become the voice of the Knicks and the Giants. Uh, a great classic voice giant in uh, broadcasting yeah. history oh, he invented broadcasting like television broadcasting he did everything from high school football to to national games yeah he's he's just a there's a documentary on marty glickman and i highly recommend that you you look it up because he is an amazing story so what really happened here is yosef goebbels that guy again goebbels look at him Goebbels, that's right. He goes to, on behalf of his cult leader, Herr, Herr Hitler, he goes to Avery Brundage again, this guy, who's the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, and he says that the Fuhrer wants those two Jewish runners off the team. And Brundage goes to the coaches, goes to the officials, and said, this is what's going to happen. So good job, Avery Brundage, head of the uh U.S. Olympic Committee. Here's a guy that really, in the end, was more about his own enrichment, yeah. despite he and, and his minion spin on the thing. He set the uh, blueprint for those Olympic. I mean, they've been caught uh, every decade. Some of them have been caught. He set the blueprint for that for taking kickbacks, and he was a he was a he was a man of Joel Greenberg like morality. That's the truth. That is the truth. And he's the bother. kind of guy, John, that really, really makes that question hard. Do you fight back or do you take the higher ground? It's tough yeah. to take the higher ground with a guy like that who is just so corrupt and is so self-serving. But that's what he did. And sure enough, the two Jewish players, Jewish runners, were kicked off that race, which just goes to show you, folks, that cultural and religious racism against Jews is the oldest and most enduring prejudice out there. Sure is. Uh, Jesse Owens stepped in. He refused to do it. He says, I'm not going to do it. And then coaches and officials got in his face, put a finger in his face, and says, you'll do as you're, t you're told. Mm -hmm. So they went out there, and um, they did the race. Four by 100-meter relay. They broke a world record, 39.8 seconds. They won by 15 yards. <laughs> 15 yards, this was a record held for 20 years. Let's listen to this call. Jesse Owens, American Negro, the world's fastest sprinter, sets a terrific pace from the start and passes the Italian Mariani easily to hand over to Metcalf. He flashes ahead, faster, faster, past Humber, Canada, to send Draper away, the second chain. And Draper, look how he's moving. He's clear. He's taken off the rest of the field in the curve. And the last chain, thank you, Vykov, shoots off. They can't possibly catch him. He's hurling himself down the straight to victory for America and a new world record at 39.8 seconds. Thank you, Lord Beaverbrook. Oh, look at that. He's moving down. That's the worst play-by-play -play I've ever heard of a race. <laughs> That's hilarious. Garbage. It's I don't know if he was doing it to the video or not, but just the look at him go. And I'm thinking, you're doing a radio broadcast. No one can look at him. Maybe he was narrating the video. He, he may very well. I, I, I say we give him. But, yeah, they won by 15 yards. Just That's a lot. 
in a, yeah, in a and Glickman, the aforementioned Glickman, uh, to his dying day, maintained that obviously if he and and Stoller were on the team, were on that relay team, they still would have won. Yeah, they would have. They won by 15 yards. At any rate, another world record broken, and uh, at the end of the Olympics, and and really toward really toward the end of his life, when looking back on this period, uh, Owen said this that he spent his whole life watching his mother and father and older brothers and sisters trying to escape their own kind of Hitler. Uh, first in Alabama, then in Cleveland. And all I wanted now was a chance to run as fast and jump as far as I could. So I never looked back and he said he never wanted any part of politics. And he wasn't in Berlin to compete against any one athlete. The purpose of the Olympics is to do your best. And that's what he learned from his coach. He said, I learned that from my coach, Charles Riley, that the only victory that counts are the ones over yourself. So that's the way Jesse Owens framed it uh, as looking back on that. What happened, though, is that that's four gold medals for track and field. And an athlete in the track and field category would not get four gold medals again, John, until, do you know when? Uh, I'm going to go Carl Lewis. Nice job. Carl Lewis. In Atlanta, right? 84, no, Los Angeles. Oh, in L.A. Okay, it's right now in L.A. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, L.A. in 84, wow. Yeah. So following the Olympics, he goes on this tour, this AAU tour, and and, uh, essentially what they want to do is they want to recap or recoup their monies that they spent sending the athletes to Berlin. So they go on this European tour. The athletes don't get paid, of course, because that would nullify their amateur status. Right. They're making all kinds of money, and uh, they're not seeing any of it. They're jump, jumping through all kinds of hoops, doing all kinds of you know shows for grandma kind of thing. And uh, it was frustrating for Jesse, who wanted to take advantage of the offers back home. But it just it just shows you one other thing about the AAU. I mean, it was all about them not only recouping their money, because that's the line they gave, but just to make an obscene profit. Yeah. And this is which is what they do. The AAU is a corrupt sports entity. It's one of the worst around because it 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 really puts the bottom line over anything that's good about the sport. You have to prove me wrong on that because I'm, I think I know what I'm talking about. No, I'm it's they've 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 run afoul of um say the law and uh rules for such things decade after decade, frankly. So Owens, on the advice of his coach Schneider out of OSU, thinks he needs to take advantage of these offers in the United States. So he quits the team, and of course they ban him for life, which is just one more asinine thing the AAU did. Ban Jesse Owens for life. Good call, AAU. Did that to Jim Thorpe as well. Just ridiculous. Ridiculous. There's nothing good about the AAU. I'm sorry. Nothing. Nothing good at all. So he goes back home. He's welcomed by Fiorello LaGuardia. Republican Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, mm-hmm. and they give him a, a beautiful ticker tape parade. Uh, it was it was amazing. As a matter of fact, he's in that car and he discovers a bag at the end of this this motorcade trip, and it's a bag that was full of money, like ten thousand uh-huh. dollars in cash. Someone just threw that bag into the car. Uh, unbelievable. That was really. intended actually for a defensive back recruit for Alabama. So that actually uh, Nick Saban's going to need that back. <laughs> right. Right. Plus interest. 
right? In 1936. Sorry, is that an issue? Well, that was our Ferrar guy. So he has this ticker tape parade, but it's still the United States of America in 1936. So when going to a reception in his honor at the Waldorf Astoria, very nice hotel, he and his mother have to take the service ele- elevator up. They couldn't even go through the front door. This is, ni- this is New York City right. in 1936, and Jesse Owens, this hero, international hero and icon, is treated like that. And it gets worse. Because, of course, the president invites all of the athletes that have won gold medals to the White House, and he invited all the white athletes, FDR in this case, did not invite Jesse Owens. No telegram, nothing. Lots of speculation on this, Johnny, but my feelings are it's 1936. Politics. It's an election year. Right. But you, that, is the, that is the biggest landslide in the history of landslides. I think he had... 500 more electoral votes than Alf Landon, whoever he ran against in 36. And so he could have lost all the South by inviting Jesse Owens, American hero, to the White House. And he would have. And he very well may have. He very well may have. But he really placated the South, FDR. As a matter of fact, um, all of the New Deal, and here's, here's Jesse Owens' quote, that Hitler didn't snub me. It was FDR who snubbed me. The president didn't even send him a telegram. And it's it's very, very sad. No honors bestowed upon him by FDR. No honors bestowed upon him by Harry Truman. And if you, if you break down the New Deal, John, all the aid that was given to people who were out of work in the New Deal didn't include farmers and domestics, which were based, the two basic jobs blacks had in the South. Right, right. They were excluded from that New Deal relief. And they also made sure that aid was locally administered. So that pleased all the southern segregationists. Sure. The northern segregationists were pleased because there was housing discrimination encoded into the New Deal. They coded black neighborhoods as unsuitable for the new mortgages that the New Deal was paying for. So black communities remained deep in the Depression, well into the 30s, whereas white America because of the New Deal and because of the GI Bill later, you know, the white middle class exploded. Right. So FDR really was not, I mean, he had no love for that. Now, his wife did. His wife spoke oh, yeah. very she eloquently about, about discrimination, about segregation. But FDR not only did nothing about it, he did things to exacerbate it. Well, and he was ultimately a political animal. And outside of even the 36 election, remember, the Senate was run, Congress largely was run by Southern Democrats. I mean, yeah. that they, they, that's. He had to placate him. And yeah, he, he needed that support. Uh, people like Carter Glass from Virginia and guys who, you know, you, you, you wouldn't want to work with, obviously, today. But those were the political realities of the day. It's no excuse for FDR. He did not lead on uh, on racial issues as much as he, he could have. So now Jesse's back. These offers dry up if they were ever there. There was an offer from Eddie Cantor to tour with him for 10 weeks. He'd pay him 40 grand. Uh, Coach Snyder thought he was going to make $100,000, mm. but none, none of that materialized. Uh, he was a world celebrity at this point, mm-hmm. not just a U.S. celebrity. Uh, he made track and field hugely popular and obviously really led the way, really led the way for African-Americans to emerge in sports. And sadly, had there not been a second world war, he probably would have been able to cash in on the world stage. 
he he would have, and he would have probably gone to the forty Olympics as well. Yeah, and and you know really solidified himself because he would only been twenty six years old right. at that time. So, yeah, it's it's sad. Nothing materialized, and he knew he really knew it was going to be a slog. And he, you know, America didn't embrace him. Certainly, economically, they didn't embrace him, and that was what was important to him. As mentioned before, John, in his mind, real freedom for African Americans is economic freedom. Sure, and none of that was happening for him. But he he was still American through and through and, and, and loved the idea of this country because he knew, yes, other Western countries didn't have segregation. But he knew that the ceiling, he could break the ceiling in America. And it's what he did. He actually he actually was able to become the greatest Olympic athlete of his time. And he knew that he knew he he, he knew that they that it could provide him with that opportunity. And he realized that the two most important mentors in his life were white men. Mm-hmm. So he kept that precarious balance. He walked that line his entire life. And I think it's fascinating. And I think it is reflective of this country because I think all of our citizens, if you take, if you take them in whole, those kind of thoughts course through everyone in this country, some more than others in this direction, some more than others in that, but it, it's fascinating, and he really is a mirror uh, to how this country is, and he had to live with that. He walked with that every single day. So he knew it was going to be a slog, and it was. Not many opportunities. He had to take, you know, sideshow things. He had to go to baseball games and run against the fastest player. He had to, you know, compete against racehorses. You know, it was somewhat wanna- pathetic. I just want to point out there that I don't know who he's running against there uh, as a baseball player, but hell, the guy's holding up better than the horse against him, frankly, because he's got the horse by, you know, 20 yards. and He's only got the guy by, you know, five. Well, he had a trick. You know, the trick was that the horses normally he gets skittish horses so that they would that they would jump and that they wouldn't get a good start with the with the gun, with the star gun. Wow. So that was his strategy. He'd get a nice head start on the horse because the horse obviously is going to be faster if they start at the exact same time but that was a big deal and he made some money that way he then started volunteering working with kids uh and then he started to get some speaking opportunities and it was really kicked off by president eisenhower in 1955 who honored him he named him an ambassador to sports so he was he he worked as a sporting ambassador for the united states and that gave him that gave him some income. That gave him some exposure. He was able to parlay that into some well-paid uh, corporate jobs, the one you mentioned at Ford Motor Company, and um, and a motivational speaker. So he started to get some financial stability. But it was Dwight Eisenhower who did it for him, not FDR, not Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> so fast forward to 1960, he goes back to Ohio State because that connection remained strong his entire life. And he's there. Uh, to celebrate with his daughter, who is the first African-American homecoming queen crowned at The Ohio State University. And while all the ceremonies going on, the photo ops are happening, he whispers to his daughter, he says, only in America. So that's the guy he was. He, he really was that. So now let's fast forward to the 60s and to the civil rights movement. And to everything that goes on with that, he, again, feels that economic prosperity is the real freedom for black and blacks. And he thinks that the protests 
that the civil rights movement is going through uh, may turn off white employers mm-hmm. who are the key to African-American success. So he, while secretly wanting, you know, court cases to move in the right direction, for legislation to right, uh, to move in the right direction, he certainly wasn't opposed to any of that. Right. But he was opposed to the protesting because... Right. He just felt like that wasn't the way to go. That and, entrepreneurship and an education, like Booker T. Washington said, was the more, well, progressive thing to do in terms of economic freedom for blacks. And there was an ongoing battle within the civil rights. You know, the civil rights movement wasn't monolithic in that way, but there were a lot. There were uh, black athletes in the in the '60s, Jim Brown, among them, who their entire, uh, you know, they were involved with the, with the whole movement, but. They were all about economic uh, opportunity and uh, creating your own economic opportunity and creating yeah. businesses that were uh, immune from uh, the issues that you, you you dealt with when trying to have a, a minority run business. So that that was a movement within the the civil rights movement that uh, he was uh, you know there were there he had allies in that in that respect. And I think what we see uh, what we saw from the civil rights movement is uh, there were a lot of different pieces that came into play uh, for the level of success that they were able to have. Wasn't just one, you know, it wasn't yes. just the protests. It was the people who were pushing on the economic front, and to yes. your point, also on the court front. So, right. Yes, exactly. All right, so now fast forward to 1968 to the Mexico City Olympics, and John Carlos and Tommy Smith um, uh, finished first and third in their race and they had the very iconic photograph on the dais doing the black power salute and of course avery brundage shows back up he's still in charge john he's He's still in charge in 1968 and he uh you know he kicks him out kicks him off the team Mm -hmm. kicks him out of the village says it's a nasty demonstration against the american flag by negroes no problem with the with the nazi salute john no but evidently had a problem with the black power salute. Yeah. And, you know, that year, too, I mean, there had been uh, I, I mentioned, uh, I believe, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar earlier and uh, Lou Alcindor at that time. But uh, he, they didn't, he didn't go to Mexico City. And there were a lot of African-American athletes who did not take part in those games. So those were very racially charged. I mean, 68 and it was as racially charged a period as, as there was. Absolutely. I mean, it was post Martin Luther King's assassination. Yeah. Uh, and things had started burning all across the country in 1968. Yeah. As a result of that, there's only one major city that didn't have a riot the night Martin Luther King was killed. Do you know what city that is, John? Indianapolis, Indiana. Would it of course be you do. for for a thousand points? Yes, of course you do. Thanks to Bobby Kennedy. Thanks to Bobby Kennedy and his. Sadly, was two months away from his own assassination. Yes. So he did not support. When I say he, Jesse Owens did not support what Tommy Smith and John Carlos did. He talked to them. And later he was quoted as saying, these kids are imbued with the idea that there's a great deal of injustice in our nation. In their way, they were trying to bring out what is wrong with the country. He told them, uh, this is Jesse speaking, I told them that the problem certainly belonged in the continental borders of America, but that this was the wrong battlefield. Their running performances would have done more to alleviate the problem rather than disrespect they showed to our flag and the discourtesies shown to the Mexican government. So once again, he goes to the host country. 
mm-hmm. and courtesy showing them, similar to the situation he, he commented on with Hitler. So obviously, Owens, on one hand, firmly believes in the tradition of the Olympics, and then the other hand, he does understand the horrible, excruciating struggle of African Americans. But he was caught in that middle, and he he spoke out against Smith and Carlos, and of mm-hmm. course, he was, uh, you know, that didn't go over well in in the African American community. Um, they looked upon him not as a hero anymore mm-hmm. at that point in time in the late 60s. And it just seemed to him that whatever position he took, there was, you know, major, major con- consequences. But Avery Brundage, once, once again, in the middle of an Olympic moment that involves Jesse Owens and not coming out very nicely at all. And it won't so be his 19- last horrible Olympic moment either. No, it won't. In 1972, he had another horrible Olympic moment following the uh, – the massacre of the the Jewish athletes, and I believe this is what you're talking about, John. Where he uh, he says the Olympics must go on, mm-hmm. and I think most people supported that decision. Uh, but in that same speech, uh, they, he had uh, had some sort of row with Ro- with Rhodesia. Actually, they didn't yeah. want to include Rhodesia because Rhodesia had uh, an apartheid system that was as bad Brutal. as South Africa's was, if not worse. And the, and yeah, and they said you're not going to compete. You can't do that. And of course, Brunt, Brundage wanted him. Of course, and he another country went, to kick back money to him. Yep, he went on and on about it and lost the battle. He lost that battle. He did. And in that speech, you know, hours after losing eleven Jewish athletes, murdered in the Olympic Village, essentially, he says we have to go on. Well, no, he says there's two horrible things that have happened. And he mentions one is the Rhodesia thing. Yeah. He mentions that in the same breath yep. as there's the massacre. That I mean, are great you Howard Cosell, that great Howard Cosell uh, thing where he mentions William of Orange. And you know me, I just love uh, obscure historical stuff. But uh, Cosell just eviscerates uh, Avery Brundage. And uh, you know, shortly thereafter, he's named Lifetime IOC, and he's really kind of hands-off after that. But uh, yeah. yeah, he's uh, – now he's the villain in your history, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. So yeah. continually, on over and over and over again, the villain. So Owens does change a bit. He, after a while, he ends, ends up writing a book a couple of years, about four years after that, writing I Have Changed. He had written a book prior, prior to that saying my life as a black man and white man. But in the second book, he, he says that militancy, he, he saw that there was a place. At some point in time, a limited place for militant protests. Mm-hmm. And... Who knows what happened in those intervening years for him to, to do that. But I think he just continued to uh, th- think about how it is. He continued to evolve in his thinking. It's all it we can ask from, of people. Yeah. He came from a certain place. Yep. And then he gets to another place as well. And he understands it. He was never a jerk about any of it. He wasn't a jerk to John Carlos or Tommy Smith. He talked to them. He talked to them. And uh, so that's how it went. At this point in time, it's in the 70s. He's uh he's a lifelong smoker, so his health is starting to fail a little bit. But he's still got that great connection to Ohio State, and, that, and that's a big big story, John. Ohio State and Jesse Owens, that that is a big story. That's a lot to be proud of 
from the yeah. Ohio State University. The way they handled it, the way they treated him for the most part, the way they handled him after the fact. And uh, as a matter of fact, in 1971, Woody Hayes calls Jesse Owens and asks him to call Archie Griffin to help him recruit him. Archie Griffin then played for four years at Ohio State from 72 to 76, 75 actually, 72, 73, 74, 75, won two Heisman trophies back-to-back. All thanks to Jesse Owens. <laughs> I don't know if it's all thanks, but... Well, you get a call from it's Jesse a Owens. Story. It's a great know, story. You get a call from Jesse Owens, you're going to listen. Even and, and, with the issues, you know, with younger African-Americans, certainly, right. and more militant folks, he's still Jesse Owens. And so then in 1976, Gerald Ford, we're back to Gerald Ford, who there was a connection with in the 1935 Big Ten Championship. Yep. Uh, he awards him the Presidential Medal of Freedom which is pretty neat. Posthumously, George H.W. Bush awarded him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Mm. So let's recap, Johnny. <laughs> nothing from FDR. Nothing from Harry Truman. Right. JFK remains pretty silent on him. Apparently only had three years. Yeah. Might have been working uh, something up in the second term. Eisenhower gives him a shot economically that he parlays mm -hmm. to get some financial stability in his life. Gerald Ford gives him the uh, you know Medal of Freedom. Pretty good. And George H.W. gives him the Congressional Medal of Honor. No, so, I can't even, no, hold on. Let me let me just, the Congressional Medal of Honor, though, is for military. That's a, that's for heroism on the battlefield. Are you sure that wasn't the Presidential Medal of Freedom? No, the Presidential Medal of that Freedom was, was what George, was what Gerald Ford gave him. Yeah. But then George Bush posthumously uh, posthumous, posthumously uh, awarded him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Huh. So we can we can check that Jeff can Jeff can fact check that for us uh, in a second. But uh, yeah, the now I may have gotten it wrong in terms of what George H W Bush did, but he didn't give him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That was okay, Gerald Ford. Okay, I just want because Congressional Medal of Honor that's that's battlefield, uh, you know, Sergeant York stuff. Uh, so just uh, I I didn't know if maybe you know I believe Je in nineteen ninety H W awarded him. That that medal posthumously. Wow. Just maybe popped into Arnhem for a little while and just uh, it says you know. here he gave him the Congressional Gold Medal. OK. Yeah. Uh, not not the Congressional Medal of Honor, because that is a military Congressional award. Gold Medal. Right. I stand corrected. So there it is. See, look at that. I, what and would I, I do? I, what would I do without you? In thrive. The show, John. You'd thrive and you know it. And that's why <laughs> no, I... you're looking to shove me out the door just as soon as possible. No, There'll be a no. long series of post notes now because I pointed out that, you know, scratch. I shouldn't have explained. I shouldn't have mansplained, mansplained that. scratch for any of you out there who don't know. <laughs> I mm. sound like the announcer for the uh, relay race. And here they are. Look at them lined up. There he is. The black American. They're all staring at him. Can he defeat the Aryan youth? I know they're also boy. There's like a lot of gravitas to it. Yeah, I I, I kind of enjoyed it. If it was yeah, yeah. you know in term if he was narrating to the video, it's 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 pretty funny. It's pr it's pretty. It is it's really funny. It's incongruous. No, it's very funny. There's Jesse Owens, American Negro. You know, it's just hilarious. And off they go. Look at him run. Good Lord. Quite ahead. No one's catching him now. He's handing it off to Porter. Look at him go. It's, wow, it's compelling. So at the end of the century, ESPN did their thing. The greatest athletes of the 20th century. The greatest athletes of the century, right? Yep, we remember that. That was a yes. big deal.
We did. We argued went about on it. and on and on and on. And he, <laughs> he finished, <laughs> he finished sixth. Yeah. So what do you guys think about that? See those names ahead of it's Michael Jordan, Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Wayne Gretzky, and Jesse Owens. I think I'm, that's, I think it's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think you could argue with, I mean, you could probably move the order around. Um, but but it's, it's really the hard to argue with those guys. All, you know, it's a great greatest basketball player, greatest baseball player, greatest boxer, greatest Great football ho- player, greatest hockey player, and greatest track and field guy. Well, it's hard now, to argue. now pro- probably not the greatest track and field guy now. I think I think the only thing I would have done differently is just uh, tied for first, and then whoever came next was seventh. <laughs> it's one one like, one one. I like one, that one a lot. Seven. I like that too. And how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you, it's such an impossible list to, um, to, to come up with. Because how do you compare different sports? I mean, to the point, Jeff, we were laughing earlier, you know, babe, if you have a, you know, superstars competition on ABC, then your number two guy, Babe Ruth, is not the guy you want on the bike race. No, he's not even, you don't, he's not even in the building. No, right. No, he's not invited to play. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not really sure what, what event Babe Ruth takes part in. But he was the you know greatest, arguably the greatest home run hitter of all time, uh, and he was the greatest left-handed pitcher in the American League for a while too. So yeah, that's, yeah. But you, but you don't want him on the four by one hundred relay. You're not going to do well. <laughs> you don't you don't want any of them actually on the four by. Well, you could have him on the relay, I suppose. You could have Jordan on the relay. Yeah, Jim and, Brown had some, Jim Brown had wheels. Jim Brown had some speed. Yeah, but uh, you know, two hundred you know hundred yard dash. They're not going to come close to Jesse, obviously. Babe Ruth's got to get in a Packard to go 100 yards. Yeah, it was, uh, it was in his contract. If he has to go more than 70 yards anywhere, there's a Packard to take him there. If, waiting, waiting for it. That's if, great. Man. If Babe, Ruth, Packard. If Babe Ruth were around now, he'd be taking the golf cart from the bullpen to the, to the mount. Be living oh, in yeah. the villages, taking the golf cart everywhere. <laughs> so that's it on Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens, it's uh, amazing. This is an international star. Yeah. He had a second-class citizen in his own country. But like his hero and inspiration, Booker T. Washington, he really tried to dedicate himself to building bridges between cultures and within cultures. And in the end, he's not only viewed as an international icon, but he really is viewed as an American hero. Yeah, and, and he sometimes gets forgotten. And I think part of that is, you know, if you put him up there on the pantheon of athletes that, you know, helped pave the way for where we are now, there's obviously further to go. But I mentioned Joe Lewis, um, Jesse, Jackie Robinson. Jesse kind of gets, I, I think, shuttled off to the side, Mark, because the Olympics is a once every four year sport. And he wasn't in front of the American. He had that great 36 Olympics, and certainly to a lesser extent. And more regionally, the Big Ten and, and, you know, track and field, it was known, but it wasn't like baseball and boxing, which were your most uh, well-known sports at that period of time. So those guys were in the American consciousness, I think, a little more. I think benefit of that, they are more quickly remembered than a Jesse Owens. Um, Yeah, and it's you're right about the Olympics. I do think it is the greatest American Olympic you know, m- series of moments, I should say. Okay. Uh, compared, you know, and number two, we've talked about this as well. But you're right. He is he is somewhat forgotten. And it's not only that, John, but a lot of his story is familiar. We mm-hmm. went over f- familiar ground to people, yeah. Including, yeah. including Scratch 
scratching. Uh, familiar ground in terms of his story in front of Hitler, having trouble coming home, that kind of thing. But I think what is not looked at a lot is his point of view with all of that and how he grew in that point of view and what formed that point of view. I mean, he's a son of a sharecropper, and he becomes an international icon. He's a grandson of slaves, and it was just that realm of, of African-American political thinking that was just a little bit more conservative, in a way, less hopeful, in a way, less hopeful for progress. And so more pragmatic, more realistic. Right. I think that's How do the, I thing, really is the level ahead. of pragmatism. Because I think they were, I think there was a thought for that. Uh, and again, I can't speak for obviously African Americans of the early 20th century and the mid 20th century, but I, I th- the, their thought was that that was the better way to get more progress. That Certainly you, in, the, you they know, were thinking that the, 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 the uh, the protests were maybe a one step up, two step backs or a two step up, one step back thing, because it would to the point that you made earlier might turn off certain people. Um, so I do think it is important to point out that the civil rights movement, which Jesse Owens was very much a part of, um, was not a monolithic movement that only had one way of thinking. It brought a lot of different ways of thinking in. Um, and I think Jesse Owens, towards the end of his life, realized to, to your point that, um, you know, the squeaky wheel syndrome does come into play at a certain point you know you you have to make there have to be grand gestures at times yes um yes. and um it's just understanding the the timing of those grand gestures yes and it's interesting it's just like in in white america there's multiple po- political points right. of view exactly and in, in in black america same way and he was more of that conservative bent for the most part and so there it was. But he it is nice. It is a nice, somewhat redemptive story that he was able to, after a while, have some financial stability, be a motivational speaker, yeah. be out and about, very good speaker, and and have a life that was, you know, up to the legacy that he And he was created. very consistent about the Olympic thing because one of the last things that he did, and I believe he passed away in nineteen eighty, but one of he the did. last things that he did was uh, he pushed President Carter to rescind the boycott of the 1980 Moscow uh, Olympics um, because he was very much, and there are those folks, you know, uh, who are of the Olympic movement, um, um, athletes and people involved with the Olympics that do see it as this sacrosanct thing that should be completely devoid of any political, um, of any politics whatsoever. Now, we know that's a virtual impossibility, but uh, but he was consistent about, you know, yes, uh, the Russians into Afghanistan is a terrible thing that we need to we need to address. But this is not the forum to do that. And and again, that may not be my point. It may not be your point. It may not be Jeff's point or anyone's point, but it is a valid point to take when it comes to the Olympics, I think. Yeah. And especially to your point about protecting what the spirit of the Olympics is. Right. Uh, Jesse Owens was all about that his entire life and remained consistent to your point. And, and so, so, the, okay, we talked about FDR and Harry Truman basically snubbing him, talked about Eisenhower, Ford, and Bush giving him awards and honors and opportunities. And then uh, when he had the chance to convince another president to do something he wanted, he that president it. said no, Jimmy Carter. So <laughs> <sighs> it's, it's really interesting. It really right. is interesting how his story of race and sports and his story 
uh, in terms of the confusion of civil rights. When do you fight back? When do you hang, hang back? And how it interacts with American presidential politics is fascinating. It just it's not what you would think. Right. Well, centrist Republicans, which of which were like uh, Midwestern Republicans and uh, Sunbelt Republicans at a point, um, were the allies of the civil rights movement. They were. They were. Wow. More than Democrats, Southern Democrats, which then split off to become the Dixiecrats, obviously, and then yep. moved largely into the Republican Party, starting in 1968 with Nixon's Southern strategy. So there was a, yeah, there was a lion shift in uh, where the party stood. So uh, it's not, it, it, there were, again, Martin Luther King among them, um, civil rights leaders who were very much uh, in contact with Republican uh, centrist and more liberal Republicans uh, to help move the uh, civil rights movement forward. All right. So what I plan to do uh, this time, John, Jeff, Mm -hmm. we uh, we had some sound bites. Yeah. The music. I wanted to add some production values. I wanted to make it about a 30 minute presentation so that between the banter, it would be about an hour show. We're at 108, which is good. But I think uh, I think because I was so committed to those things, I think I uh, didn't leave any room for humor. This was this show is pretty devoid of humor. Yeah. uh, And then I think the most entertaining part of the show, John, was when you and I had a had a fight, had a little spat (laughs) over your mansplaining, had a little spat, just went on and on. Just like I just, you know, I just I took it so personally. It's just the you know, the elitism of, uh, just, well, he scratched. Now that means that your foot is over the line. First of all, you didn't describe it well either. I'm, good, I'm just I'm going to throw you under the bus on it. You just didn't describe the scratch well either while you were mansplaining it. Um, so I think. How would I, you have described it? I think there's I. A, uh, uh, that you, your, your, your foot is over the, the start line, the jump line. Yeah. I your foot is over I the jump the line. line. You, you, you got a little, you got a little, you, you tried to over explain it. Again, you just, you know, and I understand, never underestimate the lack of uh, intelligence of people that you're dealing with in daily life at any point in time. It just seemed like, you know, I, it seems like I respect the, uh, after further review, uh, listener more than you do. I I think that's apparent. (laughs) That's, that's what's apparent. Yeah. Well, maybe if you dig, if you dig deep enough too, you can find a lot of humor in the fact that Mark was mansplaining something that was part of the broad jump. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, and you're and you're obsessed with that. You're just so obsessed with the na- the proper name of it that it was the broad jump and then the long jump. Well, I think it's still referred to both ways, depending on. I, I catch a little international it, track from time I agree, to time, but it's po- <laughs> it's popularly known as the long jump now. Yeah. And you're right in some circles, internationally, perhaps. Good yes. for you catching. You know, so me. who would you say is the greatest track and field runner now? Who would you call that person? Uh, Michael Johnson, maybe. Okay. By just the number of gold medals and yeah. records, yeah, that he has, yeah. Well, it is it is fascinating though that his records lasted twenty twenty five oh, years. Yeah, he was well ahead of his remarkable, time. remarkable. Um, so there, and that go. was a great track program at OSU. Anyway, I mean, they 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 that that was one of the premier track programs in the country even prior to him getting there. So to you know to get there and get the kind of coaching. That he got. I think it's interesting, Mark. You bring up the fact that you know there's these two white coaches. Well, the bottom line is, at that point in time, there were not opportunities for African American coaches. So the no. chance that you would run into an African American coach, true, were slim to none. 
but it's noteworthy that they took such interest in him and helped him so much, especially the first, especially the first one, uh, Charles Riley, junior when high, he's in yeah. junior high. Yeah. And then, and then the technique he teaches him. Right. Which, which is the way you I talk think, to, yeah, talk now, to Rome. It was when I was on a track, a bad track athlete in the eighties. I mean, that was how you, you, you ran light on your feet. That was supposed, supposed to be the point. You know, there was also an interesting thing that I but read. That about. wasn't the case in 19, right. 30 or whatever. Right. It was, it was dig. It was, you had to dig. Yeah, I know. It's too, too over I may have over explained that one too. No, I don't think, no, I think you were fine on that one. So, you, you know, you're, you're one for two. Uh, so you're about 500, which, you know, for us, again, anything over like 210. And yeah, 210. We're, just, we're, we're, uh, uh, beyond where our skills should take us. But something else that I interesting when you talk about, um, uh, endorsements, uh, Jesse was approached by Adi Dazzler, uh, in, uh, Berlin in 36 and convinced to wear Dazzler's new uh, running shoe. And Adi Dazzler is yes. became Adidas. Yes. And so he actually good. did. He was, you know, long before the Air Jordans, there were the, uh, you know, uh, the the Buckeye bullets of of Adidas shoes that Adi Dazzler, who was way ahead of the curve on all yeah. athletic shoes. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really, really interesting as well. No, that is a that is a great story. I omitted that for time's sake, but that that is fun. That the inventor of Adidas right had him do that, and his name is Adi Da. You know, so it's Adi Da. You know, it's like Adidas. Yeah, Adidas. And, there it is. He, uh, yeah, and I guess I guess he's just wandering around the Olympic Village saying, uh, "Where are my shoes?" <laughs> and uh, you know, obviously, four gold medals later, got to be the shoes, money. So there it is, hero Jesse Owens, villain Avery Brundage. <laughs> well, that's there's absolutely no doubt about that. But no. it, it, it 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 is interesting if you just look into Brundage's history. Um, Constantly on the wrong side of history, he really was. And Constantly. to your point, it was he wasn't even though one of those guys who was on the, you know because there were people on the wrong side of the. Uh, I think of the uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith thing. Who it was all about the Olympic movement and where you felt, you know, that that needed to be completely apolitical. But to your point, the Avery Brundage, it was all about self-aggrandizement, uh, self-enriching. That's, that's uh, what he, it was. He created a, a, a corrupt system that no one for 40, close to 40 years um, could, uh, could crack. Yeah. And I mean, that is, that is the facts. He, he may have started out, he was an Olympic athlete himself, I believe, in 1912. Yeah. I think the same Olympics that Jim Thorpe uh, outshone everyone. Uh, right. Avery Brundage was a part of that and then became, you know, ensconced in the uh, Olympic Committee and was the head of the U.S. one in 1936, where the, you know, the first thing where they pulled the Jewish members from that relay. Unbelievable. Absolute Unbelievable. power absolutely corrupts. And I think and, that's, and what, that's what ended with up happening. Avery Brundage. I think yeah. he, you know, really wanted to make the Olympics a thing and keep them going and do everything he could to keep them healthy and, vi and vibrant. Uh, but yeah, at some point in time, that power, that power got to him. And he, yeah. you know, he had Joel Greenberg esque criminal, uh, yeah. intentions. He had a man of his era's blind spots when it came to things like race and anti-Semitism and all of those uh, things. And it's not, it's not giving him an excuse, but you know, he brought that, that which is so antithetical to what the Olympic 
movement is supposed to be, but there's anything that's supposed to be completely based on, on ability. And, uh, it, uh, somehow in Avery Brundage warped, ugly hellscape mind, um, he reconciled the fact that I'm supporting this by doing everything that's antithetical to it. But you can convince yourself of anything. Yes, you can. All right, that does it for us. Uh, remember, next week we've got our 1972 Rough Rider deep dive. <laughs> Springfield Youth Club Rough Rider deep dive. Maybe I'll get uh, I'll get uh, starting quarterback Steve Carricker on the show. Uh, uh, See that uh, there it is. That uh, would be a friend of yours actually coming on the show. County County leading rusher David Lesser could join me as well. My 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 dear friends who I ended up playing on that team with, and then high school football as well, and then they went on to play in college. And that I was great. exposed for the fraud that I am. <laughs> for the for one of you know for the yes. first of many times. <laughs> Please get in line, people. All right, so that does it. Uh, next week Monday we're going to just talk about the world of sports, and again this is a. This is constant, uh, you know, work in progress, yeah, folks. So we're still debating how many shows a week we should talk normal sports. How many show? How many times uh, a month do we do deep dives? We're still debating all those things. I mean, John, we're essentially ten weeks in. If this was an every day, five day a week show, we'd yep. we'd be two and a half months in. We're brand new. We're brand we're, new. So right. we'll give us a break. And we're, you know, one of the co-hosts of this show is wondering why we decided to stop doing live sports talk right when the live sports started well it just it's one of us we we decided well we're going to do all these deep dives which we did which initially we did as just a defense mechanism because we were running out of ways to make wow will they open the sport will they play 60 games or not and uh yeah so it's a, it's a work in progress it's we, we we do what we can we do all right for jeff for john i'm mark everyone have a great weekend and we'll talk to you on monday